Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. I love my nerdy little dorks. Let's hope that Frank is furniture now. She leads with her teeth. I love it. Smell me. I smell like Chanel. Yeah. Reeve Gauche. This is a big thumbs up from Lauren. Mr. Buck Henry. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season one, episode 17, My Dinner with Einstein. It's Lauren. Hey, it's Jesse. And it's really hot in New York City. It's so hot right now, you guys. We're really sad. Just so you know, for you... We have sacrificed the background noise of my fan and air conditioner yeah. for your listening experience. And we do this for you. This is for your ear holes, mm. not our bodies. <laughs> uh, so today's episode is directed by Barnett Kilman. What? No. Stop it. Yeah. It's written by Gary Donzig and someone named Steven Peterman. You may have met him with us. Yes. And if you haven't, you should go back and listen to our interview with Steven. He's delightful. And we'll have thoughts of his today throughout the episode. We will. Yes. Thank you, Steve, for sending us all your thoughts. Mm -hmm. But now it's time to read the bio of Gary Donzing. Let's talk about Gary. Let's introduce you to Gary. This is uh, now when we talk about the book, this is from Murphy Brown Anatomy of a Sitcom uh, by Robert S. Alley and Irby B. Brown, which we have talked about before. And this is Gary's bio. From about 1990, right? Indeed. Okay, so Gary Donzig. The son of a Russian princess and an Indonesian chiropractor, Gary spent his formative years between Bukatinji and Brooklyn. I apologize for me mispronouncing that, everyone. His earliest desire, other than suckling, was to be a doctor. After scraping his knee and seeing blood, he reassessed his goals. A degree in broadcast journalism from the American University in Washington, D.C., and graduate work at New York University led Gary into a modestly successful career as a photographer, a potter, and an actor. But his life suddenly changed in the mid-1980s when, as an out-of-work, slightly depressed, very angry actor, he encountered Stephen Peterman at the Temple of the Body, The Sports Connection. <laughs> Hallelujah! Praise be The Sports Connection! <laughs> For the fruits of that meeting and the remainder of his bio, please turn to the writing of the Blessed One, Stephen Peterman. Mm. Gary Donzig is my Patronus. I love him so much. <laughs> Might be one of my favorite bios so far. I just really appreciate it. And if you're looking at the book, everyone, the next bio is Stephen Peterman's. Of course, because side by side. Very, very smart compilation there. Yeah, so this episode aired March 20th, 1989. Um, so the title of the episode, My Dinner with Einstein, is a play on the the movie My Dinner with Andre, which, uh, fun fact, stars Wallace Shawn, a highly lauded character actor who also comes into Murphy Brown in a little while. And directed by someone named Louis Mall. Oh, you may have heard of them. Who is married to Candace Bergen. Indeed. Um, it's a great movie. It's 1981. It's definitely what we talk about as a dramedy. Um, it features Andre Gregory, Andre, and Wallace Shawn, Wally as fix, fictionalized versions of themselves having a conversation. I definitely recommend just renting it and watching it. It's brilliant. What it makes me think of is that now we have kind of a modern version of it in the trip. Yes. Oh, that's brilliant. You're right. Yeah, we do. That's exactly what it made me think of when I thought of this movie. I was like, oh, the trip. I we love do the that. trip. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. But it's that it's a play on this and these conversations. Yeah. The trip is a British film, if anyone is unaware. Yes. And actually has two sequels. I always think of my dinner with Andre because it's one of my favorite jokes at the end of Waiting for Guffman. It is. Oh. Because it is a many-layered joke. It, it really is. A if anyone is unaware, I'm not spoiling the movie, but um, he has action figures <laughs> for dinner with Andre. Andre. 
because they sit mm-hmm. almost the entire time. Yeah. And so I loved the layerness of that joke. The only action is that their hips are movable. Yeah. <laughs> I think Waiting for Guffman is the reason I first knew of My Dinner with Andre. Okay. Because I watched that movie in my family obsessively because if you're a theater kid, you watch Waiting for Guffman. And I think that's why I looked up and watched My Dinner with Andre because I wanted to know what Corky was talking about. Different Corky. <laughs> For everyone listening. Anywho. So that's the, that's the play on the title, and we'll we'll see as we go through. So the opening song is the very famous He's a Rebel, mm-hmm. accredited to The Crystals. But I found out that it is not The Crystals. It is actually a band called The Blossoms. The Blossoms. Now, before I go into the history, which is fascinating, of why this happened, do you know who the lead singer of The Blossoms was? Jesse. I mean, I'm on my computer right now so I I could tell you but I'll let you say it okay (laughs) I had it pulled up (laughs) damn thought I was gonna be able to surprise you I wasn't sure who was gonna do the song (laughs) damn Jesse stop being prepared I just I do my best so the lead singer of the crystals was Darlene Love indeed now the original blossoms were Darlene Love Vanita James and Jean King. They were the first black background studio singer artists. And before that, as uh, Bette Midler in this wonderful documentary about backup singers 20 feet from stardom. It's so good. It's people. so good. Said that before that, they were tasteful white girls as mm. backup singers. Mm-hmm. Darlene Love said that they would refer to them as readers. Hmm. They could read yeah. the music, but they couldn't do the music without it, which meant they really didn't have a lot of soul or fun or rhythm to it. They mm-hmm. just sort of were doing what was on the page. And so this was very new. Now, the Blossoms were about 15 at the time, which is crazy. But when this song was recorded, Darlene Love said that she knew that she wasn't going to get credit for it. Mm. The story behind it is that Phil Spector, yep. she ended up working with for a very long time, Wall of Sound, wanted to beat someone else which happened a lot recording the same song yes so vicky carr was had recorded the song but phil could get it out faster because he had he already had everything within he had his own you know company so the crystals were on tour and they couldn't come in to record it so he brought in the blossoms now the blossoms you may also know from monster mash and the shoop shoop song and frank sinatra that's life sam cook's chain gang they've also worked with elvis and jackie wilson and aretha franklin and marvin Gaye. and you know they were the sound of the 60s really particularly out of california i mean obviously we have some motown people but mostly out of california but after he's a rebel was a huge huge hit Darlene Love thought, well, this Phil Spector guy knows what he's doing. I'm going to sign with him. So then she recorded her first song, signed with him, thinking it was going to be her song, Mm. which is He's Sure the Boy I Love. And she didn't know until it was played on the radio, and it was attributed to the Crystals. And she was pissed. Yeah. But she had a contract. Mm Mm-hmm. So Darlene Love was born Darlene Wright, and it was Phil Spector who actually changed her name to Love. And by the 1970s, she was finally free from her contract. And she signed with another label... And then that label sold her contract back to Phil Spector. She was really stuck. She said that, you know, he was a big famous guy now, and it got to the point where he didn't want to be shown that he was wrong in front of other people. And it got so volatile that she walked out Mm -hmm. of a session and didn't see him for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then what's sort of kind of amazing about Darlene Love's story is that she she had a kid. She had to make money. So she started cleaning houses. 
And funny enough, I first heard about this story because it's fictionalized a bit in the film Made to Order with mm-hmm. Ali Sheedy. That's what I thought of the, the second time. you said that. Right? And what's interesting about that is that Mary Clayton plays sort of a version of her as a maid who used to be a singer and mm-hmm. then gets sort of rediscovered. And Mary Clayton is in the 20 Feet from Stardom documentary as well, which is, you know, very interesting. So she was kind of playing a version of herself. So one day, Darlene is listening to um, her Christmas, her very cr- famous Christmas song, Christmas Baby Please Come Home, while she's cleaning someone's bathroom. That's so messed up. And she thought, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. She moved to New York, and she said that, you know, after a series of things, her, her career really uh, picked up. But what really did it was in 1986, when she went on David Letterman, because of Paul Schaefer, mm-hmm. and sang Christmas Baby Please Come Home, and did it as a tradition almost every Christmas until he retired. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's, a, it's an incredible story, and it's so, it's a part of history that I think gets overlooked a lot. It does. And I think it's just... And I had always heard, obviously because of that movie and just hearing about Darlene Love, I love Darlene Love. Mm-hmm. Her voice is so distinct and, and special, and, and so I think when I heard that, I thought, oh, the Crystals must have been this band that she was part of, because I didn't know a lot about this history, and then I knew she'd been overlooked. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize how overlooked she And the she fact had that been. she didn't let that keep her down. It's its incredible that she turned back around. Yeah. Well, she gets royalties for this song now. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That's the least that she couldn't get. Exactly. And in 2010, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Bette Midler did the introduction. Mm-hmm. She almost, I think, cried during it. And there's yep. actually a really great a duet of He Sure the Boy I Love on um, her album, It's the Girls, which Mark Shaman, who did Sister Act, yep. actually did the composing for um, orchestration, I should say. It's one of my favorite uh, covers of that song, actually. Um, another fun thing about this song yeah. itself was, you know, I love my trivia, and finding out that they they took the lyric, he's a rebel, and he'll never be any good, and borrowed that for the song Dentist from Little Strap of Horrors, when they say he's a dentist and he'll never be any good. Yeah, totally. And I was like, that's when I was like, oh, yeah, that's why that sounds so familiar to me. And the other talking about this history is the fact that if you know Little Shop of Horrors, the the backup girls are a play on the 60s girl groups. Mm-hmm. And specifically, they are named Crystal, Ronette, and Chiffon. Well, quickly before we go into the episode, we have some thoughts from Steve. Indeed. Um, and, and something really interesting, sort of, you know, referencing his interview with us. And definitely go back and listen to that, guys, if you haven't listened to it. It's not just about season one. It's about, you know, everything. everything. It's a great interview. Is that at first they were really unsure about, here are people who have everything. But it, deep down, they're very insecure and flawed people, uh, even though they're very successful. The biggest flaw for Murphy is her ego. Absolutely. Which I absolutely agree with. <laughs> and, and this was something interesting. He said that Murphy thinks of herself as incredibly honest, self-aware, <laughs> <laughs> and not at all petty. Oh, uh, sure. And so having to confront that, that truth is very painful for her. And they really love the idea of someone as beautiful as Murphy saying that looks aren't important. Even though, and this is not Steve, this is me, it is. She is always attracted to men who are extremely handsome. Yep. That's her type. Well, and I think that there's something that we see throughout this where <laughs> there are moments where I I think she's very proud of herself for being attracted to somebody who is. Yeah, yeah she is. That's, that's yeah, that's an interesting part of the episode mm-hmm. that we're going to talk about. Like, oh, aren't you just doing a service? And then to have it be that it wasn't that, you know, he is unattractive is that he's unattractive on the inside. Mm-hmm. He's, an, uh, Steve said, an insufferable champagne swilling handsy boob. He is, he is a boob. 
Yeah. So this so this is actually a, an episode that the two of them did pitch as opposed to being assigned something. And you know, I think sometimes it's, it's cool. both ways. So we have one of our montages with music and um, all of these scientists. We have Albert Einstein. We have John Nash, mm-hmm. Carl Sagan, and then the funny ones. Yes. <laughs> uh, Fred McMurray as the absent-minded professor from 1961. Um, some people might know it as Flubber because that was that the was remake. the remake with Robin Williams. Yeah. I also, I like the fact that we go from actual nerds and it slowly turns into like these caricatures yeah over Which throughout like this montage it's yeah like they do the real real and then the joke like, and this is what we really yeah. think and then i wasn't sure but jesse thinks that mm-hmm. uh, i am a little right here is that it's colin clave as frankenstein mm-hmm. from the famous frankenstein film and then is that filbert i think it's filbert yeah. filbert okay That's what i wrote down yeah <laughs> colin clave or clive we're actually not sure <laughs> as frankenstein and boris karloff as frankenstein's monster and uh, and then just dr frankenstein looking up at the machine that's going to reanimate the monster. As I was watching, I thought at first that John Nash might be Alan Turing. And then, of course, I went, no, not at this time. Not in 1989, probably. Unfortunately, he wasn't getting the recognition that he should. But I was surprised that Stephen Hawking wasn't in it. And then I looked it up and realized, oh, A Brief History of Time came out in 88. Well, actually, I would also say, but for different reasons as well, both of those men were not... Um, notable for being a cliche nerd where that was in the way alan turing was sentenced for being a gay man and basically tortured by his country and wasn't forgiven by that point and then stephen hawking even if a brief history of time had come out his what made him in this very superficial way uninteresting was a chronic illness that hurt him in a way so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be funny so funny you're totally right. And I wasn't, I was thinking of it just like, oh, these are just scientists. But you're right, there's more of a layer to it. Yeah, they're making are, the like, these are nerds. These are nerds, yeah. And those two would be, those are those are a different, un, unwelcome joke, I think. Yes, it would be. You mm-hmm. are correct. So I guess I'm glad that wasn't there. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, now that you say that, I'm like, I'm really glad they weren't included. Well yeah, done. But editing that's what team. I was thinking while I was watching it. But now I guess I wasn't seeing it from the nerd point of view. Mm-hmm. So we open on the FYI offices. We're in the bullpen. And Frank is on the phone. And he seems a little uh, upset. He's uh, frustrated and talking to somebody on the phone. It, it appears it's a friend who can't uh, make a game that evening. And they really need him. I, it's a poker game. It's a poker game. Mm-hmm. And um, he then pauses and goes, well, how far apart are the contractions? Which gets a big laugh. And then his response, Frank, is, I think she's just fat, Dave, and looking for attention. Dave? Clearly gets hung up on. Not a good Frank, joke, Frank. 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 Frank is Frank. Um, a bit of a uh, popular boy bully in this episode. <laughs> he is. He is. Frank. Uh, and Jim enters. And you see Frank do this little, like, bing. And he's like, Jim, my man. And he wonders if, if Jim needs to do something while Doris is in L.A. Which I find very interesting. because I, I think the audience up until this point has assumed that Doris is a housewife. So what is Doris doing in L.A.? And yeah. it clearly isn't a common thing. It's not a common thing. Mm-hmm. L.A. to me, I mean, she could have family in L.A. Sure. She doesn't seem like an L.A. kind of person. But I did think of that, too. When, when you mention a big city, the impression is for a job. Exactly. Like, Doris is in L.A. versus uh, Doris is out west, or Doris is in California. Yeah. Like, saying L.A. makes it seem like she's 
yeah. there for the business. And maybe this was an idea that they had and then they changed it because mm-hmm. we've never heard of Doris having a job. No. I just love that. I'm like, what is Doris doing? Why Why is Doris? Like, Doris isn't just out of town. Doris is in L.A. Yeah. No, that, that really, that, that, I'm so glad that, that also pinged you as well as it pinged like, me. I was like, I, we haven't really thought about Doris having a life outside of the, her household. Yeah. So go, Doris, whatever you're doing. And he's like, he's like, hey, so, you know, you're, you're alone at home. You should come, come to my game. Clearly self-serving. Mm-hmm. And Jim says, he, he, I'm enjoying my time alone. It's been a long time since I've been a bachelor and I intend to take full advantage of it. Last night I ate a sandwich in bed. Wild man. Yes, I love Frank. You wild man. And Jim does this little nod, which is kind of like his dance where his, his nod is like really fast and quick and he like blinks like a crazy man. But he's like really proud of himself for so being the, crazy. So if I may, this whole section is interesting to me because I don't think of Murphy Brown as being a sitcom that has a B-plot. I know. And I was trying to think if they ever did a B-plot ever again, and I don't think they did, or maybe just because, again, the show is not known for having a B-plot. I mean, even Joe mentioned that Candace had so much to do and so much dialogue, and Steve mentioned in our interview with him that there wasn't, I think, until season three that Mm -hmm. there wasn't a scene with Candace in it because there really aren't B-plots on this show. And I wonder if they realize that's just the drive of the show, that everything tends to revolve around the one plot, mostly. It does. I mean, we had a little bit with, like, Miles getting a date and that kind of stuff, but it's all part of the larger. Yeah. And this isn't. It isn't. This is an absolute classic sitcom B-plot. It is. And um, so something that Steve also shared with us was talking about uh, the stuff that they gave to the gang. In the background, he said, I love the stuff we gave Miles, Corky, and Frank to do when Murphy's trying to deal with Victor in the office. And he talks about how they they have some great Three Stooges moments of physical comedy. And that's one of my favorite things that they keep doing is like the three of them where Corky looks like the exhausted mom dealing with the two boys who are messing with each other and the slaps that happen a little later that we'll talk Mm -hmm. about. Um, And actually, I'm so excited because I wrote this in my notes, skipping ahead a little bit. Was he? Steve says, and I and I just noticed and loved how Faith invades Murphy's space and gets close to her face when trying to get dirt on her romantic life. Because I have that Faith like leads with her chin and her oh, jaw. Always, it's amazing. And just the people out of Jim just trying to get a night alone at home with his book. He says it's based on it's actually based on a British play called Butley. Both Gary and I had seen on Broadway in our New York days. In it, Alan Bates was a divorced, alcoholic, and possibly gay literature professor whose life is falling apart. The whole play takes place in one night. All he wants to do is be left alone to listen to a recording of, I think, Wagner's opera Parsifal. But people keep coming to the door or calling on the phone, and he's forced to deal with with a world he wishes would just go away. I find it interesting that, from talking to Steve, it sounds like, as ex-actors, they Gary and him were influenced a lot by other plays. Exactly. Either historically or just having seen them. And I, I think that's so interesting. And I wonder if that is because they come from an acting background mm-hmm. or maybe other writers just haven't mentioned other things that they were influenced in. Mm-hmm. But we keep hearing that a lot from a mm-hmm. lot of their ideas. Well, is, I also appreciate that they're coming from this place of they're really looking at at the motivations and this like inner life in, these, in the supporting characters creating this beeline. Mm-hmm. Um, I also... For me, it encourages something that I talk about with fellow writers a lot about that the concept that there are only two or three stories mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. And therefore, we're always influenced by different things we see and experience and how they told the story this way versus how I would tell the story this way. And, and I, I just appreciate that he has those thoughts on these, the, what the gang is doing in the background this whole time because they're really not involved with Murphy and Victor's experience. No. And so they have their own little drama that's happening in the background. Yeah. And as we talked about before, Eventually, they do get the sense that 
when the gang sort of works as a little clump, mm-hmm. as you know, I- interacting with that plot is when they are really at their best. Mm-hmm. Oh, they, they're amazing in this. Yeah. It's so funny. So Jim is is trying to decline Frank, and he says, "Tonight I'm making sloppy joes. Then I'm going to pour myself a brandy, sit by the fire, and read Mickey Spillane, which is the most boring thing he could be reading." Yes, but it makes sense. Like he it likes makes total sense. He likes spy detective mm-hmm. novel stuff, which mm-hmm. we will find out, right? Mm-hmm. That's the kind it's of his, stuff he likes. That's his novel, man. Noir. Noir. Um, and Frank's like, no, you're a newsman with a wife out of town. You shouldn't sit at home alone. You can, should come play poker. And Jim gets very serious and says he isn't going back until Frank gets a door for his bathroom. Yes. So... I don't. I don't think that Frank actually gets furniture until like about season four or five. Is that that one he, girlfriend? The one girlfriend, yeah. Who like, like wifes him up a little. Yeah. <laughs> they become like this Italian couple. Yeah, I feel like Frank just has a futon that he's had for a really long time. Yeah, I, th- I feel like in one episode he just has like a folding chair. No, a beach chair. <laughs> yeah, he's just sitting on a beach chair. <laughs> I can think of an episode of Queer Eye I just watched where <laughs> this guy has just like uh, picnic furniture. Let's hope that Frank has furniture now. Oh, I I think Frank has furniture now. I think he has furniture now. Frank does like the finer things, so I feel like maybe he's settled a little bit. Yeah. As much as he can. So Jim says he's been waiting a long time to read his book, and but Frank goes in, I Frank needs him and guilts Jim. So Jim says, yes, this is the story of Jim's life in this episode as he's constantly guilted. He says, fine, he can, he can read the book tomorrow night. And then Frank asks him to bring cash this time because everyone hates checks. There's a lot of check jokes. So many check yeah. jokes. So the elevators start open. Elevator door is open, and it's Murphy, and she's leaning, looking quite exasperated. I feel like you're probably going to want to talk about this outfit. Oh, how did you know? Oh, Lauren, I know you. (laughs) Uh, Love this outfit. It's sort of a cream rose pantsuit with a tie jackety suit thing. Uh, Man, she can pull off pale colors. I look dead. I hate a pastel, and she looks good. Yeah, sort of the skin tone with her hair. Yeah. This is a big thumbs up from Lauren. Yeah. Love it's it. a it's a thumbs up from Jesse with the asterisk that I would never wear it, but somehow she looks amazing and I'm Same. jealous of it. Same. Uh, though I do like a dusty rose. Uh, Murphy then turns and there's a group of men standing in the elevator with her looking a little sheepish already. And she demands to know which one of the men ha- had his hand on her butt and uh, no one's making eye contact. She mm-hmm. says, somebody saw him do it. Point him out. And they all lower their heads. And she goes, right, stick together, you gutless jellyfish. I love this scene, but it reminds me of something that happened to me. I mean, it reminds me of a lot of things that happened to me on the subway. Uh, Oh, hey, well, um, I was in an improv group, and I leaned over to sign something, and Mm -hmm. this guy thought it would be funny to slap me in the ass, Mm -hmm. only I stood up too fast, and he slapped me in the back, Mm -mm. and it hurt Mm -mm. a lot, Mm -mm. and I screamed. Mm -hmm. And nobody would, I did the thing where I said, okay, who who did that? Somebody saw it. Yeah. No one, including the women in the room, Mm would point the person out. Mm-hmm. And I was made to, I was treated mm-hmm. as if, why am I making such a big deal about this? Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at the women to speak up for me, mm-hmm. and none of them did. I'm sure somebody's probably rolling their eyes and wanting us to just move past the joke of the moment. But as somebody who has also experienced being on a full subway, as somebody is trying to reach under my skirt <gasps> oh, while God, I'm on a that's subway. much worse. And then talking telling them to back off moving a little bit away them trying it again telling them back off having people watch it happen and nobody say anything or do anything life experience affects us in different ways yeah and i would say that um that particular moment i know the joke is 
making fun of the men who won't stand up and are complicit and say, you're all gutless yeah. jellyfish, but also you're all gutless jellyfish and be better. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. Yep. Cause I think it's something that is relative to today. Yep. And just so you know, what you said is that's much worse. No, it isn't. It's not relative. Thank you. They're both awful situations and they shouldn't happen. So mm-hmm. be better. Yes. Everyone don't be complicit. So then we find <laughs> Murphy's new secretary which we will talk about in a little while because mm. Renee Watson Johnson is also has the best name ever is brilliant. Uh, she is an African-American woman. Yes. Um, which huzzah. That's what I was very yes. excited to have an African-American woman with substantial work in this show. It's, it's a great little character. She, she does so well with it. And, you know, th- we had someone on uh, Twitter who was going through the show, and she mm-hmm. said that it was really hard for her to continue the show now um, because it's so white. Mm-hmm. Um, so this made me very happy that there was. Now, this is not uh, saying that the show at the time was completely inclusive because mm-hmm. it wasn't. And there were very few African-American Absolutely. characters or characters of color. Mm-hmm. But it was really nice to see, oh, great. Okay, mm-hmm. here's this really great part. I think something that is something I'm passionate about bringing to the forefront is you know, intersectional feminism. Um, I think it's important, especially as women who are not of color for us to expect more and not just talk about our, our section of feminism, but include them all. I think something that can be troublesome for people is worrying that the amount of Motown was an appropriation by a white lead. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for us to celebrate those moments when it did. And while we love the show and we respect and we know how much progress it it did make in various forms we can always expect more we can always ask for more absolutely and it's something that we're looking forward to for this for this next revival yeah and is, is are those opportunities but i think that um and something we have talked about is that we actually want to hold off on talking about the the motown element um until we can have someone of color also come in and talk with us about it because otherwise we're just two white women talking about something that is not just ours absolutely but also why we want to highlight absolutely the the singers and the writers Whenever the behind possible. the songs. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like Darlene Love. Oh, Darlene. Uh, so her secretary is a smoker. She is sitting there just puffing away. And Marie says, no, I told personnel no smokers. And she's pro. And I love that she's, oh, no. Oh, oh no. no. I told personnel no smokers. And the secretary is like, no, no, I'm quitting. She promises. She she says, this is my last one. And she picks up what is an clearly an empty pack and shakes it to prove it's the last one. And... Murphy says the back, the desk smells like the backseat of an old cab, that she's disgusted. And secretary says, no one else in the building wants me, but you're a smoker. I thought you would give me a chance, mm. which I love. And you just see Murphy's good heart soften a little bit. And she says, well, okay, but if I see you light up, you're out of here. And the secretary does this great thing of going, no, she's quitting. See? And she picks up this tray full of cigarette butts. And she's, like, coveting it. She's holding it really close. Like, she doesn't want to let it go. And she's trying to puff it out. And they're covered with, like, lipstick. And they're just smashed together. It looks like this little bouquet of disgusting cigarette butts that she's just holding near her as she keeps trying. Um, I love that you noticed the lipstick because I was like, shout out to props. Kudos props. It is so specific and I love it. It's just so gross. There's so many of them in there. And she's just holding it like the person just doesn't want to let it go. The comic bits that she does are so great. She's hysterical. And so Murphy just kind of turns around with acceptance as someone in personnel hates me. Yeah. And she walks over to the to the coffee station in the bullpen and Frank does this whoa ho ho serious perfume. And he wants to know if she has a lunch date or maybe an afternoon rendezvous. 
And Murphy says it's nothing, says it's from a magazine. Which, yeah, right. man, I used to collect those magazine perfume oh, did pages you? because I thought someday I would grow up and be somebody who like really understood perfume. So I would save the little pages and I would put them actually, um, when I was a kid, I would put them in my, my drawers as like a, a freshener. I'd put them in the drawers so that all my clothes smelled like different perfumes. I love that. It didn't it, you know? It didn't work out as well as I thought. Now I use Irish Spring. So you don't have a signature scent. I do. I just don't. I don't like spending money on that stuff. So I have. I have one from from Jay Malone that I love. I feel like it's a generational thing. My my mother was not a huge perfume person, so I was never around the ritual of perfume. There is, and I'm sorry to those that I offend with this comment, but there is some. I call it the rich woman's perfume that I smell almost exclusively uptown in New York City. What is it? I don't know. I think it might be Chanel Number no. 5, but I've never tested it. Smell it's, me. I smell like Chanel. I can't smell it, so I don't think it's that one. There's one, and it might just be the the science, the actual, like the people who eat cilantro and think it tastes like soap. There is one <laughs> that I smell that to me smells like mothballs. And all of these rich old ladies in New York City wear it. I don't think it's Givenchy and I, then. And I hate it so much. And they all, and they waft by. Is it very flowery? No, it smells like mothballs. Okay. It is musky. I'm going to figure this out. Okay, cool. You let me know. We'll do it might po- just be my nose. Anyway, Murphy, I hear you on the magazine perfume. I'm a Chanel girl. Mm. Although I have eau de toilette because it's cheaper. And my mother usually gets it for my birthday every three years or so because I re—I almost use it almost every day and it, it lasts. Does it? Because I don't notice it 30 seconds after it's been used. On me or you mean in general? Anyone. Oh, okay. So you can't smell me. I can't. Okay. I mean, I, I love the smell of Chanel. I also sometimes mix it with a little uh, coconut body butter to give it a little different scent. Yep. Yeah, my mom didn't do that. Oh, no, I made that up. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I just I like this was this was not the my female line. Yeah. <laughs> so, right after she tries to pass Frank off on this, Corky comes over and says, "Ooh, someone is wearing Reeve Gauche perfume and went a little overboard with the moose this morning. Who is he, Murphy? Tell me everything." And this is when she leans in with that grit. She leads with her teeth. I love it. Mm-hmm. So yes, the Reeve Gauche perfume is that's Yves Saint Laurent. Correct? It is yes yes. I, I do had, know something. I had never heard of it. It's just one of my favorite perfumes to say which I learned some, it might have been Murphy. I don't know. I learned it somewhere and I knew how to pronounce it. Um, it's from 1971, although it was composed in 1969. It was launched in 71. So I, I'm going to guess it's a very 70s of our mother's generation kind it's of a thing. Composed like a sense symphony. Like polo. Like oh, I think of polo, I think of my dad. Oh, nice. I think of Old Spice. <laughs> <laughs> but I like saying Givenchy. 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 Yeah. Rive gauche. So finally, Murphy can't shrug off their questions. She says she's waiting for Dr. Victor Rudman, one of the most brilliant minds in the world today. He's probably going to win the Nobel Prize in physics. Corky, of course, is like, well, he must be really cute. Really, really cute, too. Isn't he, Murphy? Which, I think it's an interesting choice with Corky that they keep having her use words like cute instead of handsome. They age her down with those comments. She repeats words a lot. Really, really really cute. cute. Mm -hmm. She she does those things a lot. It's very youthful. I wouldn't say childish. It's very youthful. Yes. Murphy says she has no idea what he looks like. They only talked on the phone. And Frank says he has trouble seeing her with a guy with a clip-on bow tie with thousands of pens in his pocket. And then does a shrug. Stereotype much. Oh, my gosh. We have to talk about the stereotype. And Corky says, I, I have to agree. Just because you've entered that category of mature woman doesn't mean you should throw yourself at a dork. That really hurt me. <laughs> As somebody who loves dorks, um, it has nothing to do with your age. 
nor has anything to do with settling because they are lovely people. I like nerds. I love my nerdy little dorks. And she says Victor Rudman may be a genius, but there's no reason he has to be a dork. And then Miles swoops in with, I'm a little, little worried about this dork interview. <laughs> to which I wrote, Miles is so horrible. Wouldn't he have been a dork in school? Really? I wrote in all caps, Miles is compensating. <laughs> like, Miles, there is no way that you were not that kid. It's just... No, there's no... He still no is way. that kid. Yes. And just in his dad's coat. And in his dad's jacket. And the thing that I, I see is that now that he's... He's doing the, the classic thing where now that he's out of where he was a kid, as soon as you're away from the people who knew you when, now he's trying to remake his image as if he wasn't that sure. dork. And of course, we have cool guy Frank, who's like almost the bully. Yeah, and they're chummy. This, they're and they're chumming up. So of course, he's going to say anything he can to get Frank to laugh at him, which of course he gets the entire episode. But Miles, Miles, come on, stick up for your fellow, your fellow geek, man. He's worried about a man who probably wears his pants up to his armpits, wasting 20 minutes of my airtime, which is so... It's so egocentric. 20 minutes of my airtime lecturing us on things we don't care about. And the rest of the time has his finger up his nose. Oh, oh it's just... Mm. And Murphy's defense saying he's going to win the Nobel Prize for fractals, which are self-similar, non-Euclidean geometrical objects that occur in nature. And Miles just says, this one's a nose picker for sure. She says he's a modern Einstein. She wants to get inside his mind of a genius and what makes him different from all of us. To which Miles replies with, he doesn't use Kleenex. <sighs> Frank laughs with him in this way that I wrote, this is why Miles is doing it. The uh, way that Frank chums with him. He immediately kind of like bends over and like legs slapping, chumming together. I'm like, this is exactly why Miles is acting like this. And Corky glares at them. And Corky in this kind of three stooge thing is absolutely becoming the pretty girl from high school who was nice to everybody. Oh yeah. She really is, but she's like, that's not okay. Like constantly kind of just trying to stop them from being She would be children. that person. She is. That's why she was a beauty queen. She wouldn't hang out with them, though. No, but she was very nice. Because I had a girl like that. Mm-hmm. Murphy says she talked to him on the phone and that he is brilliant and eloquent and passionate about his work. I'm really looking forward to meeting this guy. Elevator door opens and there are two guys on it. The first one that gets off is a very tall, me- normal looking, handsome man. Murphy's type. Murphy's type. Kind of bland. Corky tells Murphy to start picking out her china pattern as if, like, now, like, team women being nice to men is going to win this one. Mm -hmm. Murphy clearly is like, yeah, this is going to be good. I'm going to show them. So she introduces herself very formally. And the guy says, oh, that's nice to meet you. I'm I'm looking for the graphic department. And Corky in the background looks so disappointed for their cause. Mm -hmm. You just see her kind of look over because clearly the dudes are doing something. But you just see Corky. Murphy, I was actually kind of surprised, is very, very chill with her response. She says... It's one floor up. Have a pleasant day. Then turns around and says, what do I look like? An info booth? An information booth? Famous face. Yeah. But I I was actually kind of surprised that she didn't just shoot him down for some reason. Like her saying, it's one floor up. Have a pleasant day. And then turn around and do that was very interesting to me because I think she was just holding herself together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Frank goes, oh, disappointed. And she says, I'm just trying to do my job, which I appreciate. As she starts walking to her office. And then the other man who we've seen in the background, looks a little older, looks a little stranger. Everybody who's watching knows it's absolutely him. Mm -hmm. Walks up and Victor gets off the elevator and introduces himself to Murphy. And he is exactly the nerd everyone was expecting. Entrance applause. And he gets entrance applause because it is Mr. Buck Henry. The only other person to get entrance applause was Colleen Dewhurst. Mm -hmm. So should we pause and talk about Buck Henry? Let's talk about Buck. Okay. So... Uh, Mr. Buck Henry, 
playing Mr. Victor Rudman, the legendary Buck Henry. You may know him from Saturday Night Live, and so therefore he's friends with Candace, which is what helped get him Mm -hmm. on the show. But he's also a great writer, as well as being an actor. So he wrote The Graduate. He also uh, was nominated twice for Academy Award, once for The Graduate, and the second time in 1979 for co-directing Heaven Can Wait with Warren Beatty. Mm-hmm. He co-created Get Smart with Mel Brooks. He is part of the SNL Five Timers Club. More than five times. Uh-huh. Uh, you also may know him as Liz Lemon's father on 30 Rock. Mm-hmm. He adapted as a writer The Owl and the Pussycat. He wrote What's Up Doc, Catch-22, Protocol, which I loved as a kid. Mm-hmm. It's a Goldie Hawn movie. To Die For, also a really great movie, which I did not realize that he had written. But he's been in Defending Your Life and Grumpy Old Men, and he's a legend. Mm -hmm. There's a reason he got applause, everybody. Yeah. Steve had some great things to say about Buck. They admired him as a writer, obviously, for all those, you know, sort of reasons. He said by this point in the first season, the show was getting critical success. So um, attracting people who didn't normally do television um, to be guest stars is getting a little bit easier. But Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, being friends with Candace really helped. He said also, just in terms of the character, that they were both had read an article on fractals and thought it was really interesting. And they're both very interested in science and mm-hmm. wanted a scientist to really, you know, um, be interesting and, and be this character be a brilliant thinker and that they gave him a lot of dialogue, you know, and he really said it very, you know, sort of effortlessly. He, he loved at the end, which we'll get to when he, he really just sort of, you know, cut loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, while they are talking and she's greeting him... Also, I wanted to say that I have, even though I'm somebody who ha- needs glasses, I wear my contacts a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I often get put in glasses on stage. Interesting. I often play myself as a geek girl, so they want to show. Apparently, you can't be smart unless you have glasses on. Of course. Um, obviously. And I just want to say, I actually have a pair of stage frames that are what he is wearing in this episode. <laughs> because apparently now they are hipsters in style. <laughs> I just want to be like, I have those glasses. Uh, while they are talking and greeting each other, Miles and Frank are doing their best nerd impressions behind his back that oh, Murphy can see. They're so horrible. They're the worst. And of course, Corky is looking very disappointed in them and very annoyed in her classy way. Victor says that you know after their phone calls, he feels like he knows her, which I love the idea that they had this connection yeah, already. I think and it's very important to show that yeah. she does find him charming. She does, absolutely. She introduces him to everyone and does her Murphy thing where she's like, everyone, instead of Victor Rudman, she says, this is Victor Dorkman. And then she tries to correct herself and then just says it again. Candace is really good when this stuff happens, when she accidentally says something and like her head kind of like bounces. She's like, Dorkman. Oh, she just foot and mouth. And so they go into her office. Um, Do we want to talk a minute about the fact that this wouldn't work now? Yes. So Steve brought up the idea that he didn't think back then it was even that plausible. I think it's a little plausible. Maybe she's trying not to know what he looks like. I don't know, but... Mm -hmm. uh, It would make sense if he had already won the Nobel Prize that she would have seen him. That's true. But he's up and coming. Yeah. So I think it makes sense because he's not... He hasn't, quote-unquote, proven himself to the world outside the scientific community yet. Yeah, so I see see his point, but I think it's not completely unplausible. Mm -hmm. You know, but yeah, today this wouldn't work. No. You'd have to find another reason he'd have to you know, a secret identity, or there was something that had to do with his character that he just didn't want to be known. Mm-hmm. He was just the egg on Twitter. Exactly. He's just he's just an egg on Twitter, y'all. <laughs> I hope people got that. I hope so. <laughs> Google it. You'll get it. Yeah. So they had a way into their offices. Yeah. So we cut to uh, Miles and Jim are at the coffee island. So Miles, you know, wants to hang out with Jim, you know, two cabrieros. 
But Jim's, no, he's, he's going to have a fire, drink a brandy, read Mickey Spillane, everything that he said, you know, and, and he's going to be fine. But, but Miles kind of guilts him. You know, he's the producer. He wants to be everyone's friend. People, you know, th- you know, treat him differently, and he feels left out because he's, the, you know, kind of the boss. Mm. And Jim finally, you know, goes, oh, okay. You know, and he has this really great moment, Miles, of insecurity, which yeah. is lovely, which um, Steve felt that was an example of showing how much he and Gary love to write for Miles and just the way that Grant does it mm-hmm. um, was really sort of a gift that, that Grant has with comedy and that particular moment. Because so he really adds the humanity that. in. He's not just a caricature. Yeah, you know. So Jim relents, you know, and says yes. And apparently, uh, Miles cannot read Jim yet at all and decides to take him to the Laugh Factory to see Gallagher. Now, they don't mention Gallagher <laughs> by name. They say smashing watermelons. Yeah, that's Gallagher. Back in 1989, my dad loved Gallagher. We watched him on Showtime all the time. I loved that as a little kid. Yep. All you need is a mustache and some suspenders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My friend did a commercial with him. He's apparently quite lovely. Oh, good. Yeah. So Jim is not very happy to see the smashing watermelons, and he's not amused. It's not. It's. It's not the best replacement for Jim's book. No, <laughs> we'll put it that way. Yeah. So uh, Murphy's secretary is hiding smoking when Victor and Murphy come out of the office, and he's telling her this great story about Carl Sagan, and that you know the two smart guys can't figure out fifty percent of the check. And she wishes she had a professor like him in college to show her how to make a stink bomb is very useful for someone like herself. Well, I, and something Steve said was that he says, I love that when Victor comes out of Murphy's office, they're, they've obviously had a great pre-show interview. And she's reminded of why she was so charmed during their previous phone calls. It's also a nod to a famous taxi episode where Alex falls in love with somebody he's only met on the phone. And then he meets her and is dismayed that she's overweight. Um, which, if you guys are looking for a new show... Um, the new show that came out, Dietland, deals with some of these things. With our friend Jen. With our friend Jen Ponton in yeah. it. But it, I've also, I've read the book, and that is something that they talk about in that book a lot, where oh. blind dates for someone who is not what you physically expected or wanted necessarily. But she's, he says, I love that we gave him a successful appearance on FYI, spoiler for the <laughs> later yeah. in the episode, where he perhaps surprisingly is able to convey the beauty and mystery of fractal equations. Yeah. And even though we poke fun at the idea of a nerd scientist, we both love science and wanted to show how fascinating it would be if explained properly. So Murphy and Victor at the elevator, charming, and, you know, goodbye. And he asks her out to dinner. And once Murphy realizes it's for a date, she says that she doesn't date anyone she's about to interview, in her reporter voice, by the way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, see you Wednesday on the air, you know, blah, blah, blah. The gang behind her during this Mm -hmm. is the most Three Stooges. And I put Corky... They start out looking perplexed when he asks, then they look disturbed, and then they all end up, so Frank smacks Miles, who smacks Frank back because they're joking, and then Corky smacks Frank on the top of his head, <laughs> like the exhausted mom. No, it's, it's the, they're, they have some really great stuff oh, in children. this. Children. Um, and so they all think, oh, oof, close call, Murphy, you know, thinking of that idea, and she's like, what, what are you talking about? That's, that's my policy. I don't mm-hmm. date people I'm about to interview. They're like, oh, convenient. And, you know, Murphy wants them to know that, that the brain is a sexual organ. You it know? is. Yeah, he's funny and, and has an amazing intellect. And, and Miles says that he always looks forward to the swimsuit edition of Scientific America. Oh, God. Miles. And Murphy believes that women are capable of looking deeper. Now, Corky can't encourage Murphy to do this. Well, she tries at first. She's like, yeah, girl. And then... But in good conscience. Yeah, she would hope 
that they would get her looks and his brains. But what if she gets short-tempered kids who run like Jerry Lewis? I mean, it's a consideration. It is. So then Murphy goes back to her desk. And I'm thinking she knows what's going to happen, and she does this all on purpose, and it's brilliant. So before she went away to the elevator, the way that the secretary was trying to hide her smoking was that she would keep her mouth closed, and then as Murphy walked by, she would use her index card to try and waft it in the other direction. It's really great. I I really wonder if it was in the script or she made all that business up. It's really great. Yeah, she's a genius. Yeah. So Murphy rattles off tons of things that she wants her to do. Well, she's hiding the smoke in her mouth. And in between little, like, moments, kind of, like, you know, tries, it comes out of her nose. And then, like, <laughs> it's, so gross. She w- it's so gross. And I kept thinking, oh, man, you are committing to this. Right, she is You are so this. committing to this. <laughs> Murphy uh, then goes into her office, or well, halfway to her, her office. she gives her, like, a full list of stuff to Huge do. Huge list of stuff to do. And like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's... it's comic gold <laughs> and then Murphy goes towards her office and the secretary thinks that oh she's okay and she blows the smoke out and then Murphy just sort of like comes back a bit with a big grin on her face and goes one more thing you're fired what I love is that the secretary's response go whoo and then lights up oh, that's great <laughs> <laughs> it's so great she's like well now I can just smoke like crazy because uh, that doesn't mean anything so about Vernay Watson let's talk about her Johnson who played her who currently is listed, I, I want to make sure. So her, her married name was Watson-Johnson. Um, she is currently listed on IMDb as Renee Watson um, because she, she was divorced from the Johnson. Um, so I'm not really... That, that wasn't, I didn't mean that to be a anyone go. <laughs> you want to take it back or you want to keep that uh, let's in? Let's just let that happen. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Um, but I will say on her IMDb, it is Renee Watson now. At the time, she was credited as Watson-Johnson. Um, she... Born and raised in North Trenton, New Jersey. Woohoo! As Renee Crystal Watson. Uh, she has been, she has an incredible IMDb page. Mm-hmm. Everyone, and she still, she has multiple things in post production right now, including the Mandela effect, which I'm super excited about. She's in Grace and Frankie. She's in Grace and Frankie. Uh, she, her first credits are in 1970, which she's, many people know her from many things, actually. She's probably best known um, either for, she had a recurring role on Welcome Back, Cotter as Verna Jean Williams, um, as Viola or Vi Smith on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which is, I think, where I first knew her. Yeah, I feel like our generation will know her as Will Smith's mom. Yeah, and um, she also was uh, Dee Dee on Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels, which makes me really happy. She has multiple um, shows where she has a multi-episode arc, including The Big Bang Theory, um, all the way back to Sister, Sister. Um, She did multiple soaps as well. She did... So she won a daytime Emmy for General Hospital, mm-hmm. Outstanding Special Guest Performer in a Drama Series in mm-hmm. 2018. Yeah. We also have thoughts from Steve about her. But I also want to say, um, interesting fact was in 2005, she was a witness at Michael Jackson's second case of child molestation. Really? Uh-huh. Huh. Which I, I, I don't know for everyone. I didn't go that far into that research. Sure. Um, I don't know what, who she was a witness for, but I just find that quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so Steve has lovely thoughts about about Brene. Um, so he says, watching the episode again, I, th- I thought it still played well, in large part due to Buck, Henry, and the wonderful Renee Watson-Johnson, who played Murphy's smoking secretary. I had met Renee during my acting days when we were cast in one, in one of the few commercial and critical failures in the careers of both Gene Hackman and Barbara Streisand all night long. 
Hackman, Hackman played an upper-level exec at a company like CVS or Rite Aid. He has a meltdown at a corporate meeting and is demoted to the night manager of a failing store, at which Renee works as a cashier, and I was a board stock clerk. She gave a brilliant audition for our secretary, and I didn't have to sell her to Diane at all, and you can see in the episode she milks every moment perfectly. So, fun fact, he didn't have to sell it to Diane because... Because she was the series regular on Diane's first sitcom, Foley Square. Mm-hmm. So... She, had she an knew in. she was great. Yeah. <laughs> we already knew she was uh, And just great. as a reminder, if people haven't listened to our Origins episode, um, that was a show with, starring Margaret Cullen, and it was about a, a lawyer in Foley Square, New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, she played her secretary, actually. So mm. it might be a little bit of a wink. She's a, nailing it. So we move ahead in the story to the broadcast. I wrote that Victor Redman is dressed like a 1970s department store mannequin. I, I, I said he's dressed literally like the year 1973. <laughs> Nailing it. It's this like burnt red suit. It's got a polka dot themed tie with blue and pink. He has red and blue plaid pants. He has a white shop, white socks, white shirt, and brown loafers. And I love him. It's almost like he went into the costume department of SNL. <laughs> he did. From it's when amazing. he was on it. It's like he just knew what to do. And I will say color theory wise, it all works. The patterns are exciting. As we find out later, he is a sucker for a pattern. I just um, had a thought. Do hmm. you think any of it's from Kyle's outfit? I really wondered, actually. I should have I should have yeah. paid more attention. Or they, they pulled them. I, they probably pulled the items from the same places. Yeah. So he clearly has not um, upped his fashion game into the 1980s. We open on him and speaking during their interview. And he says, the important thing is to keep yourself open to everything without judging or censoring. You never know where inspiration may come from. Which I think we should all think about keeping our minds open without yeah. judging or censoring. Um, and she asked for an example, and he says, a crap table in, in Atlantic City. Einstein said, I don't believe that God plays dice with the universe, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And he tells a story that he went back to his lab after playing craps, and he charted out patterns for random throws of dice. And he found that he could predict certain patterns. And Murphy asked, why why not just go back to Atlantic City and get rich? And he said, the pattern works for millions of throws, not five or 10. And he has this really cute giggle at his own wit, because he thinks it's hilarious. And he says, you can find patterns in things you think are random. And the reason this is important and why he's gonna win the Nobel is that you could start pattern finding patterns for hurricanes, for traffic jams, that fractals are the key to unlocking incredible mysteries. And what I love is the way he explains this. It's so easy to understand. And he's so charming in this interview that you understand why Murphy is taken with him. And she turns around and says this great line of finding harmony in a chaotic world, the definition of genius. Oh, Murph. Oh, and you see, like, she says it in a way like he found, he brought her harmony. Like, it's just, it. you hear this like, breath of of groundedness. Well, she's like, told you guys. Told you he's a genius. Also rocking the pale colors. Again, I have to say very muted tones for broadcast. Yes. It's usually the opposite. And that happens in the next episode, Mm -hmm. too, because we were talking and I went, oh, maybe we're wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, she looks great in it. She does. The necklace also carries over into the next, uh, Mm -hmm. from the first scene into the next episode I love her her scarf that she wears for the broadcast and how it kind of matches her skirt. The, the broadcast ends. Miles is so... He comes over beaming and suddenly is not judging this man. Um, I love how Miles and the crew were, like, raptured. They're like, this yeah. is so interesting. They're fascinating. Yeah. Jimmy says, thank you for that fascinating... You know, he says that in his closing, and you can tell it's, it's sincere. It's not just a line that he's saying to close out the broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Miles wants him to come back again when he wins the Nobel Prize. And Murphy says, oh, make sure if you do, ask for a limo next time. And he turns around with this 
this confidence. He says, I'd prefer to negotiate a date with you. Yeah, he's... he's I swooned a little bit. Like, that... It was good. It was a good line. I think he's on the high. He is, and I was into it. And he said, you know, now that the... And he gets a little nervous again. He says, now that the interview is over, I thought I'd try again. And what I love is that Frank is behind... Miles is behind Victor, and they both are listening and look so mm-hmm. excited all of a sudden as opposed to the other listening. they're going to get her on what... That she's mm-hmm. she's lying. That yeah. she really does care about how someone looks. No, they, to me, they look they look excited. Oh, okay. Like, Miles looks actually invested. Like, he's smiling. Like, he's like, yeah. Oh, I think that they're waiting to get her. No. Okay. I, like, that's not what I see at all. Because Miles I looks genuinely... Because now he's into this guy who got him all these great ratings. And now he's like, what a oh, catch. okay. Maybe. Is what I got from it. And she says she'd love to. He's He asked her about Saturday. He goes, gee, Saturday. It's American Film Museum's annual benefit dinner. But... And she's got this pause because everybody in the room is watching. Mm-hmm. And she's like, as it turns out, I, I don't have a date yet. Would you like to go with me? Before he can really even kind of properly answer, he goes, although I completely understand if he, because it's a big showbiz thing and he might be uncomfortable, maybe we can plan something else. Yeah, she doesn't want him to go. No, she doesn't. But she wants um, to look but like she feels be, pressured. To be, so she's, she wants to show that she's a bigger person. Yes. Which I, I'm, I'm confused by a little bit. I'm not sure I completely agree with that because he's just validated everything she said about him. But she's not attracted to him. But before that didn't matter and nothing's changed yet. When she said, like, no, I absolutely would have gone on it, but it is my policy. Oh, I think she's lying. I'm not sure I think she's lying when she says okay. that earlier. No, I think that, the, I think some of it might be subconscious that she's yes. what she's doing, but mm-hmm. I, I, I think that... I think now the thing that makes it different is the, before I think she genuinely, before I think she was being sincere, lacking self-awareness. Okay. I think before she genuinely was like, no, absolutely, I'd go out with him, but I can't. In the same way that Frank is like, no, absolutely, I'd like a wife, but she's leaving for Russia. And the second that Jim says, no, she wants to stay, then he's like, oh, in this one, now that she actually could go on a date with him, now the the walls are closing in. Yeah, because the truth is... But I don't is, think she was lying before. Okay, again, I, mm-hmm. I was saying subconscious, so I... Mm-hmm. Right, maybe lying is the wrong word, mm-hmm. but I, I think that she's lying to herself. Oh, absolutely. There you go. Um, but I think she... I think she's coming to this realization in the moment while also still liking him because he's validated her and she does think he's fascinating, but she's realizing a bad thing about herself that she actually is that shallow. And she she doesn't want people to know that she's that shallow. Yeah. Um, And he says, no, it sounds like fun. I'd love to go. So, and she's like, great. And he says, I'll call you tomorrow. You tell me what time to pick you up. And he walks out. And as he's exiting, we pass Jim Mm -hmm. explaining to the crew that he has this book that he was planning to read tonight and they all go, no, that's fine. They walk away, and they're saying, no, see, he's a big-time star. Why would he want to do anything with us? And, of course, you see Jim just wilt inside from the guilt again mm. and says, no, no, I'd love to go. And <laughs> follows them out. And we cut to the townhouse. Eldon, I need you. Oh. Oh, uh, yes, she does. So Murphy walks out in this amazing red strapless dress with this red wrap. I wrote, uh, yowza, Murphy. Steve says she looks spectacular. Yeah. That hair, she looks like a lion. Yeah, I think this is her dress. I think that yeah. I've seen her in this dress, in this dress, in some like at the Emmys or mm. or some publicity picture before Murphy Brown. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, maybe in a similar dress, but that tends to happen on shows because yeah. gowns are expensive. Yeah, and so you see you see it on the West Wing. Mm-hmm. You'll see um, Allison Janney wearing her Emmy dresses mm-hmm. later on in the seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like this is a thing that happens. It just fits her so well, and it looks so good. Yeah, if it wasn't her dress, I really hope she took it home. <laughs> Seriously, right? <laughs> so good, and those like tiered Art Deco earrings. It's like three tiers of this like gold kind of art. Oh, oh. I didn't notice the earrings again. Not I a gold love fan. It. I hate gold, but I love those earrings. That's true. You can you can appreciate it. Yeah, they're amazing. 
Uh, Eldon says that her voice cuts through the house like a buzzsaw. Yep. What if he was on a ladder? I could have been killed. So he sees what she's wearing, and he says that she brought out the heavy artillery. Um, she did. wants to know if she's expecting to get lucky. Um, she needs help with her bracelet. That's why she needed him. So he helps oh, her yeah. with the bracelet. I was trying to remember why she needed yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she wants to warn Eldon that the guy picking her up isn't usually the kind of man she usually dates. She doesn't want any comments. Eldon wants to know if he's missing something. Mm. <laughs> Murphy says that he's smart. Murphy seems to think that she's, you know, doing a good deed. I'm so disappointed in Murphy. Fine, you know, this is this is her holier than thou, you know, sort of up on a, you know, he's gonna remember this when he sits at his desk that he, you know, he went out with this pretty famous lady, and it's like, oh, you will be so cut down off that that high horse that you're on, Murphy. Yeah, she says he, she thinks maybe a date with her will give him something to think about while he's at his desk saving the world. Yeah, and that's like when, wow, aren't you just an inspiration? Yeah, and that's when Eldon gets that he's a dork. Doesn't she say something like, "It's the least she can do"? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Man, Gary and Steve just taking that ego out to for a ride, man. Because you got to take it up so that you when do. it when she finds out that he's this horrible that person, she's a disappointment. Yeah, spoiler. Mm-hmm. She just gets cut down. I love it. I love that they just took her up there because I'm like, oh, mercy. I don't have it written here, but is this the one when Eldon says that some guys like bony chicks? Yeah. I forgot mm-hmm. to write it down. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my, <laughs> which I love. You're I not my type. You're too bony. I love it. Yeah. So so Victor arrives and he's wearing a black tux and, and Murphy is in shock. You know, he, the he looks good. The audience is in shock. Yeah, you know, and he's got a little red sort of, you know, pocket square mm-hmm. that matches Murphy's dress. He looks great. Yeah, you know, he wanted a red brocade, but they were out. This is all they had I in love, his size. He's so disappointed because he can't have red brocade. Like, come on. Yeah, he looks good by accident. <laughs> I know. And apparently Eldon knows about fractals and Murphy just assumes that like, oh, it's too complicated for him. They're self-similar non-Euclidean geometrical objects that occur in nature. He's done fractal art. Which is awesome. Totally awesome. I love any chance that we get to prove that Eldon is really smart. He's super smart. Uh, at one point, he, uh, Victor tells Murphy, you know, this is, this is a little too complicated for you, which is great. You know, I'm taking her down after she assumed Eldon didn't know. Mm-hmm. And next time he's in town, you know, they'll put some some numbers to the computer and, and do some art. And oh, my God, my favorite line. Color me there. Color me there. <laughs> and then he takes Murphy to the side. He's like, she'll be back with you in a nanosecond. <laughs> Nerds, I love it. He just lets her know in private that, you know, he'll be out by the time, you know, she gets back. He knows she likes her privacy. This guy looks like a howler. <laughs> Eldon is my light in this episode. <laughs> He's so good. You know, well, one of my favorite lines in the future that he says is, getting it on a regular basis has not helped you. So maybe he thinks, you know, she gets laid, she'll be nicer. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy. We get to the event. They're in just a hotel. We Isn't the Grand Sheridan? or something mm-hmm. later we find out what it is the Sheraton Grand the Sheraton yeah. Grand we we figure out later that it's a hotel it's just some hotel ha- hallway but there's a gaggle of photogs maybe paparazzi but it looked like they're with the event and they're like hey it's Murphy Brown and they kind of just stand in the I way they were pop paparazzi I, the way that they were al- allowed and that she actually stood for them made me think that they're supposed to be there like they're supposed to be photo- photographed that's also because true. they're not hiding very well. That's true. But they're press. They're, they're definitely press. They're press. definitely there for the pictures. And she apologizes. She says, sorry, I know it's awkward, but it'll be over in a minute. And Victor's handling it very well. He, he says he doesn't mind. Uh, when they ask who he is, she's like, this is Victor Rudman. He's a you know physicist. And he says, are you D-M-A-N, Victor? <laughs> and she's like, okay, we're done. And she starts to walk away and he grabs her and pulls her back and says, we have time for just one more, don't we? And poses. He's loving it. He is loving it. And she 
kind of is confused and says, well, you handled that like a pro. And he says, can't let things get to you when you want to have a good time. And they walk in and he has this like, wow. And he he's just in love with this party that's in front of him. And she's like, oh, okay, well, let's let's go find our seat and sit down. And he proceeds to say, what, what do you want to do first? Work the room a little? Find out who's here? Somebody said Cher was going to show I love her. This is what Buck Henry's really good at. It's amazing. It's just like the, the running, the running, running. I love her. And Murphy is perplexed. I think it's probably the best word. Can I also say, <laughs> mm-hmm. they're playing ease on down the road from the Wiz. They are. I wrote that down. I went, what? Ease on. Yep, I love it. And then she says, oh, look, they're serving. Let's get to our table. She starts to walk away. And before they can, he swoops in to a, a girl, a serving girl passing by and grabs two full champagne flutes. Clearly has not picked up her history at mm-hmm. all. Takes one. He's like, and one for the lady and tries to ha- offer it to her. And she says, no, she wants a club soda. So he proceeds to chug down the first one. And my least favorite thing that he does of all the things he does in this episode is he then turns to the the serving gal and says, and here's a little something for your college fund and stuffs cash down her neckline. This is when I was like, oh, yep, you're a boob. I don't like you. And he then turns to Murphy, says, here's looking at you, kid, and downs the second drink. And he does this thing where he goes, yes! And his whole body, I wrote, twitches with released repression. Oh, body convulses. Yep. Almost. Almost. That's and, great. It's- but then he controls himself and just breathes. It's like, oh, okay, not not this time yet. But you see the, the inner animal that's trying to get out. Yeah. And, and then when we, I think something interesting, when we cut to the, uh, the dance section, and I... When we talked to Barnett, it'd be good to ask him because it's mm-hmm. the only time that I've seen them do a handheld camera. Yeah, uh, we're yeah when we get there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a different view and it definitely sets up what's going on. This is when Murphy tries again to use the serving to sit down. He grabs her to dance so they can work up an appetite for the food that's coming. And this is yeah when we get right into their shoulders and their faces with the handheld. And she says, you know, I just because you're out with a celebrity, you don't have to act any different to impress me. And he says, I'm not. And we find out that he goes to clubs, discos, whatever, every weekend. And he proceeds to go, we could all die tomorrow. Like I said in the interview, you need to live in the moment. Let the universe touch you. You've got to touch the universe. And we see Candace's face and she says, Victor, that's not the universe you're touching. And we're back to him being the same as all the men in that elevator. This is such a great little connection. Mm-hmm. I love this so much. It must be like, my wow. favorite, favorite structural thing in the mm-hmm. episode. I was like, he is just as bad as those gutless jellyfish at the beginning mm-hmm. we cut to um later on at the party he's drinking way too much Ugh. um she wants to talk about science with him you know he talks about science all week he wants to dance she wanted to have a great conversation she pulls him away so much he falls into her arms you know so, someone takes a picture of them sort of together because she's trying to get him to stay and it's, he wants to go have fun it's a great recurring thing they do at this section of the party where they get trapped in an awkward moment but then they immediately just go ting yeah. for the picture he asks Corky to dance and calls Cor- her slim <laughs> she says that she's Amish uh, so she can't dance but he grabs her anyway I'm sorry can we talk about the purple dress it's great. It's a little poofy for me, but it's great. It's a great color. Hey, we have established that you cannot, it cannot be your style and you can still appreciate it. Sure. I love that dress, so I would like to talk about it. Please. It is a gorgeous, like, deep purple. It has long sleeves, yet also a big skirt. And it has this great neckline that is both low, but also structured and modest. I, I'm obsessed with this dress. I would probably never wear it because I don't have an event to wear it to. But for the event that they are at in the time period they are, she looks amazing. I think you should just wear it in your home. 
No, it's, I can't think about wearing anything that heavy right now in this weather. That's true. But I'm imagining you just sitting back. Yes, I will having swan a drink, around. Wearing some sneakers. Lose a cat underneath that skirt. I don't know about the Donald Duck underwear. Was it Donald Duck? Yes. He says, what are those Donald Duck panties? Oh, yeah. I hate that word. Not a fan of the word panties? I don't like it. Mm. it makes me feel like I'm five. A lot of people don't like it. I'm, uh, uh, yeah, not a huge fan of it. But it doesn't make me cringe. It just makes me feel like I'm five. I don't yeah. know why. Call it underwear. Yeah. Also, why does my underwear have to be called a different name than a man's underwear? Thank you. That's my problem, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's my older than five problem. <laughs> anyway. Back to the story. Mm-hmm. So uh, Frank sits down before, you know, he can even talk. Murphy's like, shut up, Frank. And this is when she suddenly goes, he's lifting her over his head. What are those Donald Duck panties? Yes. And then Miles stops by with, with his, his date. His date, who, who uh, Victor insults. Well, because she's a... Very much Miles' type. Got a big head of, like, red curly hair. Hello, 1989. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's this blue kind of spangly-topped dress. Very fitted. Lovely. And he asks her, he asks her if she's ever wanted to be, the Victor asks, have you ever wanted to be a model? And she, very upset, says, I'm a lawyer with the ACLU. Which, yay, buddy. We're listening to this later than when we record this, but right now... I don't know what's what's going to be happening mm-hmm. when this drops, but right now I am very much in love with the ACLU and the work they are doing. As am I. So, um, yeah, girl, it's all I have in all yeah. caps. They walk away, and as they're walking away, he cries after Miles. If you remember, Miles, if you're going to love, wear the glove. And he's such an ass. He's such an ass. I hate him so much now, which I love. Like kudos, Buck Henry, because I went from being like, oh, nerds to. Oh, you're just like everybody else. It doesn't matter. You can still be a tool. And he then turns to her and shares with Murphy that she's not what he expected. For a big network star, you're not a ride on the Ferris wheel, if you know what I'm saying. And that's when Murphy is done with him. And she proceeds to say, this has been the worst night of her life. And that includes the Bulgarian soccer team incident. And he's taught her one thing, which is... You can't judge a book by its cover, but you can by its ugly plaid jacket. Yes. And his response is, you know what I think you need? A sponge bath. You dork! It's amazing. And then, of course, someone takes her pictures and bing, bing, smile. So we cut to much, much later. Murphy's eating. Victor is dirty dancing with Marilyn Quayle. Ding? Ding. Yeah, I say ding. Yeah. She knows now how wrong she was. You know, she could have taken him to a burger at Phil's, but no, she had to prove a point. She'd take him to a big public place so Jim tells her his Hemingway story. Just pretty much that, you know, Hemingway was his idol and he dreamt of meeting him. And he met him in Spain and it was a total fiasco. Um, you know, he saw a wine bottle sort of sail by his head. There was Hemingway. Uh, and, the, you know, they, they, they chatted and they drank and, and it sounds like it's going to be this sort of great hero story. But then uh, he wanted him to go running with the bulls. Uh, but, uh, you know, due to a pulled hamstring, and I think Jim just, and scared of death. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't want to do it. And Hemingway called him a pansy. Oh. Hemingway was a notorious jerkwad. Yes, we all know that. Um, and he says, you know, he can still love his writing, even though he doesn't say, can't say much for the man, which uh. is a big debate that we have nowadays. Yep. Yeah. It's we're having a lot more trouble now being able to separate the art form from the uh, the person producing it. Yes. 
Uh, Steve has some great thoughts on he does. this story. So Steve says that Murphy's scene with Jim at the end of the show is a lovely counterbalance to the wildness of Victor's party animal. It gives her the chance to admit she's been a victim of her own ego and also to recognize that she put Victor on a pedestal because of his intellect and expected him to fit her own stereotypes. And Jim gets to express my conflicted feelings for Ernest Hemingway, whose writing I loved and whose A Movable Feast is one of the few books I have read more than once and recommend to anyone who dreams of being an artist, but whose personal failings, a penchant for cruelty, misogyny, and anti-Semitism, make the man a lot harder to take. It also steals from a very funny Woody Allen, oi, another fallen idol, short story about a guy whose memoir of hanging out with Hemingway in the 20s is filled with moments where it's clear to everyone but the oblivious writer that Hemingway thinks he's a stupid little pain in the ass. And we have talked about a way that this came in previously in my love of a, of Midnight in Paris. Yeah. And again, when we talk about, you know, we can appreciate something even if it's not our taste. I have no problem with denouncing Hemingway because while I recognize that his writing style is important to the art form and creating the spectrum of styles, I hate Hemingway and his writing and as a person. And, but I think that it's a, it's a really sad story for Jim. I think Jim is somebody who is, uh, probably not had a lot of those experiences in his life. Yeah. I think most people tend to live up to because Jim is somebody. And I think the reason why he likes Hemingway is that it is very, his style is very simplistic. It is what you read on the page. It's not full of uh, too much complicated metaphor or, or fantastical imagery. It is, this is what happened and this is how it happened. And I can see someone like Jim finding that incredibly attractive and finding people like that. Like, I see them. I know what they are. This makes sense to me. I don't have to wonder about it. But I can see how somebody like Hemingway could disappoint him because he's he writes like he's a jerk and he is a jerk. And sometimes you don't want to meet your heroes, which is something we've talked about when we interview the people from this show, how we are constantly so touched by the fact that everyone that we have met so far from this show has lived up to our expectations as far as their candor and class and general human nature. I've, I don't know about you, but I've, I've had a lot of luck meeting my heroes. I have not. not disappointing. Um, and I've also sometimes found out later someone who I started to become a fan of and then sort of slowly just kind of was like, eh, and found out later that they actually were a terrible person. There's so I been, don't know. It, it, living in New York, we meet a lot of our heroes. We do, We end up yeah. running into them in various forms, often as somebody in the service industry. Oh, sorry. And I will say that I have I've started to change my opinion about people based on almost solely on how they treat those they believe serve them. I agree. And I have had some... Uh, very disappointing interactions. But I will say that I think I think one of the best conversations come out of this episode is that we all on all sides of it make it set expectations for people that are often unrealistic. And sure. I love the fact They're that Murphy's human. ego gets taken down because she was also put on a pedestal and an expectation that she didn't fulfill. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love the idea that he assumed that she was going to drink champagne with him all night. And she was like, no. And he was like, oh, wet blanket. I love the fact that they both experienced that, but she's the one who took it to heart. Yeah, he ends up dancing past her with a centerpiece on his head. (laughs) Such an idiot. So Murphy asks Jim, what happened after Hemingway called him a pansy? I busted him in the snout. I love Jim. (laughs) I love Jim so much. He's such a man's man. Oh, yeah, you did, Jim. And she goes, really? Excuse me. Oh, Victor. And we raise our fists 
and love she's her going forever. To, that's why he calls her slugger. Yes. Not that we condone violence. No, but comedic off-screen violence. I that's love implied. comedic off-screen violence <laughs> we for didn't people have to who see are it. little jerks. Yeah. <laughs> so please follow us on social media. Indeed, please do. We are on Facebook, we are on Instagram, and we are on Twitter at Murphy Brown Pod. Mm-hmm. That's also, if you add a .com to the end of that, that's our website. Yeah, we have an FAQ. We have all kinds of great information about the book that we spoke about. Mm-hmm. You can listen to the episode right there on the page. Yes, you can. Or you can click a link and go find, and can direct you to your iTunes or your SoundCloud if yeah. you prefer those things. Yeah, if you subscribe to any of those things that we are on, and we're on everything, including Google Play mm-hmm. and Stitcher, where you like to listen to podcasts, you can subscribe to us so that you don't have to keep going on the Twitter and being like, where's the episode? Where is it? Yeah. Where is it? Well, guess what? It's downloading to your phone right now. Guess what? It's ready for your ear holes. Yeah. Ready and waiting. Absolutely. Indeed. Uh, and then we also have links to our Spotify playlist, Murphy Brown Empowerment Playlist, where you can listen to songs from and inspired by Murphy Brown. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a, if you don't have Spotify or you have trouble finding it, there is a link to that on the website. So you can just pop right on over there. And if you'd like to to chat with us, um, please feel free to send us an email at murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Yeah, or talk to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter mm-hmm. as well. We welcome to hear your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And if you love the show, a free way to support us is to give us a review on iTunes. Please do. I know you're saying, Lauren, I really want to, but I don't have any sort of Apple product. Hey, friend next to me, can I borrow your phone? Can I change your profile name to my profile name or a name I made up? Thanks. And then you can leave us a review. Mm-hmm. It's super fun. It is fun. And clandestine. Just remember to, you know, delete that and bring so the person has their own profile. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. Yeah. Or just take over their profile. You could do that. Not that I condone that. No, not at all. Uh, So next episode we will be talking about is episode 18, Funny's Girl. And we'll see you next week. For another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. Can we have like a ticker of every time I say indeed?